today on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. There's this whole thing called sickness behavior. Sickness behavior is what happens when any mammal gets sick, be it a dog or a cat or a human. And what happens is we behave in a way in order to conserve our energy, in order to allow ourselves to heal for a natural healing process. Remember, inflammation isn't bad. Inflammation is how we heal. We need inflammation to occur. And what happens when we get inflamed, the brain in particular? We get tired. We get this thing called generalized malaise where we don't feel good. And what we want to do is we want to sit down or lie down, stay in bed. And it's all about conserving energy so that energy can be shunted elsewhere to go fight off the infection. Well, hello there. I'm your host for today, Dr. Kate Henry. And today we are talking with Dr. Gary Kaplan, the author of Why You're Still Sick, How Infections Can Break Your Immune System and How You Can Recover. Dr. Kaplan is the doctor for people with complex chronic illnesses or chronic illnesses that don't respond to typical treatment. You'll learn about things like the root causes of autoimmune disorders, dysautonomia, POTS, and PANDAS. These are all things that might sound strange if you've never heard of them, but if you or a loved one have them, you know they can be debilitating. It's critical to understand the root cause and pathophysiology that underlies these disorders so that you can heal them for good. Dr. Kaplan is gonna tell us how to do just that. Before we get started, I wanna talk to you about something that comes up pretty often on this podcast. And that of course is lab testing. You see, testing is one essential way to understand the root cause of an illness. If you're an integrative or functional medicine practitioner, chances are you're placing a ton of orders with a ton of different labs. The Root Cause Medicine podcast is created by Rupa Health. Rupa is the best way to order, manage, and track results from over 30 different labs in one single place for free. Thank goodness. No need to create and log into multiple portals ever again. If you're a practitioner, make sure you go sign up at rupahealth.com to create your free account today. While you're there, you can also try out our latest tools like the meal plan generator and lab shops, which make practicing functional medicine easier than ever. So cool. Now let's start the show. Dr. Kaplan, welcome to the Root Cause Medicine podcast. I am absolutely delighted to be here, Kate. And thank you for having me on the show. I am very thankful you're here. And especially on behalf of the 20 million people in America who are sick with a chronic illness, you have written the book on chronic illnesses called Why You Are Still Sick, How Infections Can Break Your Immune System and How You Can Recover. I'm thinking, just hearing that title, there's a lot of people at home who feel like, my God, I wonder this all the time. Why am I still sick? Why can't I get better? What's the one thing you would want those people to know? I want them to know that they should not give up. If your doctor's not paying attention to you, if your doctor's not listening to you, fire them and move on to the next doc. Because what happens is, especially with women, is they tend to get dismissed. You're complaining about fatigue, you're complaining about headaches, you're complaining about any of a number of things. And we in the medical profession still don't listen. If you've got a doc who's not spending the time and listening to you and taking the... The other thing is, don't just focus on the symptom. Focus on you. We need a 50,000-foot view of you because the reality of the matter is, my patients come in and yeah, they're fatigued, many of them bedbound and severely ill, but they also have kind of a low-grade depression and they also have problems sleeping and they also have headaches or other body pain. And as you start going through the list, you start going, wait, 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 there's something a little more going on here. And do not let somebody dismiss you and say, well, you're just depressed, move on. 
and here, take this antidepressant and go on. Because the question is, why are you depressed? What's happening? Is there more involved in what's going on? And I'll give you an example of a kid I just finished up working with. He came in, he, he had been severely depressed and psychotically. He was hearing voices, it was visual hallucinations, auditory hallucinations, suicidal, and been treated with a number of different antidepressants without real success, moderately controlled, but so he wasn't trying to kill himself. I worked him up and I found out he had Bartonella, okay, which is a tick-borne disease. He's got Bartonella. We treat the Bartonella, and I've been working with him for about six, eight months now, about eight months. The last four months, all the hallucinations are gone, completely, totally gone. And my expectation is that in another six months, we'll have him off all the antidepressants and he'll be 100% go on and get on with his life. We've got to step back and think more critically about why you're sick and how it is you got here. And once we start taking that approach, first off, it takes a little bit of time to do that. My intakes are about two hours with people. And it takes a little bit of creative lab in order to also begin to understand what's wrong. Because a lot of the standard labs we do, and most of my patients have experienced this, all your labs are normal, you must be fine. Well, let's back up. You're not fine. Let's listen to you. Seen, heard, respected. Those are probably the three biggest complaints that my patients have before they get to see me. They have been dismissed. They've been told they're crazy. They have been told they're depressed and move on. And in a five-minute visit or a six-minute visit, you really haven't got time to sit and listen to somebody and get the full story about what's going on. And before we started the show, you told me that most of your listeners are women. And here's my criticism. One of the bones I have to pick with a number of women is that in a woman's life, as a rule, they're the ones who take care of the kids. They're the ones who take care of their spouses. They're the ones who take care of their parents. And then if there's anything left, they get to take care of themselves. My suggestion is we need to take care of you first. Because you're the keystone to this whole operation. And if you're not healthy, and if you're not able to get through your day and do the things you need to do, everybody else is going to suffer. That's unfortunately just the reality of the way things work. Spouses can step in and be of help, and that's great when they are. But the reality of the matter is the overwhelming burden of the health of the family falls on the women. Kind of we need to keep you guys healthy first. And... The overwhelming majority of people who develop autoimmune disease, women. Now, that's not causation and correlation, but the reality of the matter is we're not sure why the majority of people who have autoimmune disease are women. It probably has something to do with estrogen, but the reality is that they're the majority of people who end up with autoimmune diseases, and as such, they frequently suffer. And they're really struggling. And I've got a woman in her 40s who's got three kids and a husband, and she's trying to finish her master's and severely struggling with chronic fatigue syndrome, chronic pain syndrome. And this is the norm in my practice that I see. And it's not unusual in the least that a woman will have brought in, I will have brought me three kids. And she said, okay, my turn. Yeah, finally, right? Right. We want her first though, from now on. Yes, absolutely positively, because... The women are the keystone in the family for the most part, or whoever the primary caregiver is, but it more commonly is the woman. We need to make sure that they're in optimal health, and it is the women who are most frequently dismissed by my profession. The ones who are, you tell us you're fatigued, and everybody goes, oh yeah, 
and pat you on the head and set you on your brain. The first thing you do with somebody who does that to you, and unfortunately, women physicians do the same damn thing. The first thing you do with that physician is you fire them. And then let's get somebody who's actually going to pay attention to you. Let's get somebody who will actually take care of you because you deserve to be taken care of. I love that. You deserve to be listened to. You deserve to be heard. And the other thing I run into is I'll have women who have taken their kids. You know, I deal with a lot of Pans Pandas kids. And I'll have women who have taken their kids to the hospital. And in my neck of the woods, we have one of the top children hospitals in the country. They just don't happen to believe in Pans Pandas. So when a kid comes in with Pans Pandas who has pseudo seizures and who has acting out and bizarre behavioral issues, they say it's a behavioral problem. They dismiss them, send them to the psychiatrist and send them on their way. I have one young woman who, after COVID, developed very severe behavioral problems. Violent, big girl, strong. And it's a real threat to the family. In between, she's sweet as can be. These are rage attacks. We see this very commonly in the Pans Pandas population. I have one young man who had problems where he did tens of thousands of damage to the house in the process of having these rage attacks. Sweetest kid in between. He's absolutely lovely. He's now fine. Took a few years, but he's now completely fine. We have to listen to people and just because the labs are normal and just because we don't understand what's going on, the least we can do is say, I don't know, but not tell you that you're crazy. So important. You have a whole book written for people who are in this boat. Yes. Who've been maybe dismissed, who feel like they've tried everything and they're just told my labs are normal and now what do I do? I find it so interesting that in writing a book for those people, you start out by talking about autoimmune disease and missed infections. Can you tell us first, what really is autoimmunity? Sure. And what causes it? Autoimmunity is self against self. Basically what happens is your immune system has made a mistake and it's decided you're the problem. Now what happens is it started attacking you. In rheumatoid arthritis, it'll attack the joints and the scleroderma, it attacks the, the skin and connective tissue. In lupus, it'll connect blood vessels and Sjogren's, it attacks mucosal glands. We have a classic autoimmune diseases. But what we fail to recognize is that a large number of people are struggling with diseases, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, chronic pain syndromes, these post-depressed, these post-COVID syndrome. And what's happened is in these individuals and chronic depressive disorders, what's happened a lot in these individuals is that they've gotten an infection or a series of infections and the immune system broke. Now what happens is the body builds antibodies to a flu virus. And it says, you know what? In addition to the flu, because it's very specific for the flu, it won't protect you against COVID. It won't protect you against strep. It's specific for the flu. And it's specific for a specific type of flu. It's the acquired immune system is very precise in what it's supposed to go after. And it needs to be because that's one of the strongest immune components we have. We want to make sure it doesn't get carried away with itself. It breaks sometimes. And when it breaks, it then looks at other tissues in your body, not infrequently the brain, and it says, you know what? That looks a lot like the virus. As such, I'm going to go kill that. Now it's killing your brain. This autoimmunity business is a much bigger issue than we originally thought it was. We originally had it confined to these autoimmune diseases that we labeled as rheumatoid and lupus, Sjogren's. But the reality of the matter is these chronic illnesses 
are also happening as a result of infections, and they're far more common. We've got better than 20 million people because now post-COVID syndrome is an immune dysfunction. And remember, in COVID, what kills you isn't the bug. What kills you is your immune system. People die from a gross overreactivity of the immune system. Now, quick take-home point, Paxlovid works nicely for people when they get COVID, but the other thing that you want to get, because Paxlovid, the vaccines, both seem to reduce the risk of getting post-COVID syndrome. All right, about 40% of people who get COVID end up with a pup with post-COVID syndrome. But another way to dramatically reduce the risk is metformin. No way. Yep. Metformin is originally designed for treatment of diabetes. It's a drug that we use for treating type 2 diabetes. Metformin is also what we refer to as an mTOR. It actually modulates the activity of the acquired immune system. That's the antibody system. What we found early on in COVID is that if you were diabetic and you were on metformin, your odds of ending up in the hospital were less, your odds of ending up on a ventilator were less, and your odds of dying if you ended up on that ventilator were less. People began to turn around and look and say, might metformin be a good drug for treatment of COVID? And it modulates the immune system enough so it doesn't overreact. And it's now been demonstrated in at least one study that it actually helps prevent the occurrence of post-COVID syndrome. 100%? No. But probably in the 40% range. So anything that lowers your odds of developing a long-term illness, I'm in. And it's a fairly benign drug. Indeed, we use metformin as one of the quote-unquote anti-aging drugs, right? Because it modulates the acquired immune system, and it's the overreactivity of the immune system that actually causes us to age, that we can modulate it with things like metformin in order to quiet that system so it doesn't overreact and age a little bit slower. Wow. But in the case of these chronic diseases, we can use it to modulate the immune system so the immune system doesn't overreact and we don't stay sick or get chronically ill to begin with. Now, you said something a minute ago that I've heard a lot of experts like yourself say, which is your immune system thinks your brain looks like the virus, so it'll go after it. Can you tell people, what do you mean when you say that? Because I think a lot of us have heard it, but on a molecular level, what does it mean to look like? A virus. Let's talk about inflammation in the body. Inflammation is a lot of things in the body. You have an allergy. You get a runny nose. Your eyes are itchy. What's the story? Pollen. You have antibody response to pollen. Fine. There's a couple of ways to go about getting rid of it. You can get out of the pollen. You can do immunotherapy where you train your immune system to stop paying attention to the pollen. You can take an antihistamine because inflammatory response at that point is mediated by the release of histamine by mast cells in the body. You'll take either mast cell stabilizers with something like Singulair, or you can take or chromalin, or you can take an antihistamine. All of those things help reduce the irritation. Now, if you skin your knee and you get a bacterial infection in the knee, that's a different issue. What's happening there are white cells are now attacking the bacteria that have come in to infect the knee, and that's the innate immune system. That is the immune system that always is on standby for you. What that's doing is now trying to kill the bacteria and get rid of it. An antihistamine is not going to help you there. You need an antibiotic in this case to kill the bacteria, and that will get rid of the inflammatory response because the innate immune system won't need to continue to respond to it. It's really important when we're talking about inflammation of the body is that we understand where it comes from and what the target is. Are we going after the bug itself? Because sometimes the bug can overwhelm you, meningitis, and that's going to be the thing that can kill you. 
all right? It's the immune system's reaction to the bug sometimes that will be the thing that may do you in. And indeed, as we talked about in COVID, it's the immune system that may do you in with COVID, and it's one of the reasons you feel as crummy as you do. If you get the vaccine, right? I just had my second, or my most recent vaccine uh, a couple of weeks ago. I was laid out for a day. My immune system said, oh, fun, let's go play. It was learning how to go after this particular virus that we had shown it with the immunization. And it ramped up my immune system all over the place. Every friggin' joint in my body hurt. I was exhausted. I had a headache. I lay low for a day. And the next day, 100%, all good. That's supposed to happen. It's just that we want it to go away and not continue to happen. Now, it gets even a little bit more complicated than that. We've got the innate immune system with the acquired immune system. So we talked a bit about the acquired immune system, which are the antibody stuff. Let's talk about the innate immune system. The innate immune systems are first responders. And in the case of a bacterial infection, that's the white cells that come out to play in order to kill the bacteria. Now, the innate immune system we used to think was a dumb system, on off, started, stopped. And in fact, it ain't so dumb. It does learn and it will ramp up faster each time it gets exposed to something. And it can also get overly aggressive. What do I mean by overly aggressive? Think about the innate immune system. One of its jobs is you're going to remodel your kitchen. We did this not so long ago. I don't recommend it. <laughs> Nightmare <laughs> of an experience. <laughs> Nevertheless, <laughs> you're going to remodel your kitchen. And the first thing that has to happen is you have to do demolition. Part of the innate immune system job is to come in and wipe out all the dead cells, remove all the cabinets and the flooring and everything you're trying to get rid of. Now, suppose they get a little carried away with themselves and now they're looking at your dining room going, we think that needs to be revised also. They start tearing up your dining room. And then they look around and they go, oh, the living room could probably use some work now that we've got the dining room all torn up. We'll tear that up also. All lovely, except if it happens to be your brain that they're tearing up. My first book, Total Recovery, was looking at an inflammatory model in terms of why chronic pain and why chronic depression, because we saw that pivoting back and forth so much. The innate immune system in the central nervous system of the brain is microglia and mast cells, microglia being the main one. We were looking at all of the things that could potentially set off the microglia in order to cause them to start attacking your brain. Now, obviously, infections is one of those things. But other things can do so in terms of toxins, such as mold toxins, Another thing that gets the microglia set off and re reactive, because microglia respond to if there's excessive cell death, microglia's job is to go in and clean up the neurons that died. That's its job. If you got lots of them dying off, the microglia become highly reactive and they start cleaning up a lot of stuff. Well, then let's look at the things that can kill cell death. And the fancy name for that is damps, damage-associated molecular patterns. We've talked about the what sets that off is things inside the cell end up outside the cell, all right? And when things inside the cell end up outside the cell, such as ATP, there are sensors in the body that pick it up and go, that shouldn't be happening. And the microglia migrate to that area and say, okay, I got to get rid of the cell because it's dead and clean it up and get rid of it. And then it's supposed to leave and call in the general contractor to do repair. That's its job. If it doesn't leave, it continues to do the damage that we talked about, then you've got a long-term problem going on. What does chronic inflammation in your brain look like? Chronic fatigue, difficulty, focus and concentrating, headaches, body pain, sleep disturbances, 
lots of generalized stuff that will leave all of the other labs looking completely normal. You're not fatigued because your thyroid's low, and you're not fatigued because you're depressed, although you may be depressed, but the depression is because your brain's inflamed. Then we got to go look at what caused the inflammation of the brain. We started looking at all the things that could potentially set off the innate immune system, all the toxins, which includes heavy metals such as mercury, such as lead, arsenic. We looked at things, even obesity can be one of the things that sets off inflammation of the central nervous system because of all the toxins that build up in the system. But chronic child abuse, abuse and neglect in childhood actually can set off the microglia and leave a chronic inflammatory process going on. The importance of that is if that's part of the issue going on in your life, it has to be addressed. It doesn't necessarily mean that's everything going on. And we've got to get out of this idea that you're crazy. I had a young woman who I saw who was 16 years old. When she was 10 years old, she developed obsessive compulsive disorder and she started cutting behavior, treated psychiatrically because it looks like a psychiatric problem. Now, preceding all that, by the way, was a whole series of strep infections and a tick bite, but that wasn't factored into this issue. Instead, she's just obsessive compulsive disorder, cutting behavior. Over time, she responds a little bit to the antidepressant medications and ends up then becoming truly suicidal. She ends up hospitalized a couple of times. And ultimately, she's finally somewhat controlled back and forth on these medications. She's now 16 years old. Now, imagine the self-esteem issues with this poor young woman who's been told she's been crazy since she was 10, who's been hospitalized psychiatrically times two. And imagine how well that's been received by her peers. She's labeled as the crazy kid, and she's labeled as the problem issue. And I get to see her. She has Lyme disease, never treated, wasn't diagnosed. She has flat-out Lyme disease. And there's a specific test we do called a Cunningham, which looks for antibodies, the specific nuclei of the brain. She's got autoimmune encephalopathy. She has an autoimmune process that's been tripped off by the Lyme disease that is now attacking her brain. It's not the Lyme itself that's attacking the brain, but rather it's the immune system that's been damaged by the Lyme that's attacking her brain. I got two problems now. I got to treat Lyme and I got to treat her immune system. Quiet both those things down. I ran it. This was a horrible case because her psychiatrist, I called her psychiatrist and I said, she has Lyme disease. And the psychiatrist says, that's not the cause of her problem. I said, but she has an autoimmune encephalopathy. She's got antibodies. She says, I don't believe in that test. The psychiatrist is telling me I'm crazy. <laughs> All right. And she's dismissing the testing that I've done on her. And I'm like, you got to be kidding. These aren't my tests. This is a testing that was done. There's object proper testing. And there's a whole literature on this test. Yeah, you, if you've read anything in the last 10 years in the medical literature, you'd know that there was a very profound scientific right. basis for the things you were saying. Now I'm having to fight with her, who's telling the parents that I'm crazy, who's telling the kid that, no, 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 your problem is psychiatric, it's not Lyme disease. This is what we run into on a far too frequent basis. And the parents and everybody gets caught between, I trust this person, I don't trust that person. And ultimately, it really gets down to who do you trust? But a large part of my profession is intent on keeping people sick because they will not open their minds to the possibility of a new way of doing things. And here, I'll add to what you're saying here. In my opinion, it doesn't have to come down to who you trust because you can go to PubMed and you can type in neuropsychiatric disorder associated with Lyme disease, and you can find the papers 
that prove and establish the mechanisms by which these disorders are caused by infections and immune overactivity. I love that you've put this in a book, Dr. Kaplan, because I think you've given people a really beautiful introduction to this concept and they can learn the language that they can then type into PubMed and find the papers to bring to their psychiatrist because I'm comfortable saying, and look, you teach at Georgetown, like any provider who's telling you that this is not real is undereducated. And you're absolutely correct. And in the book, there's about 500 references, which is 500 less than I had in the process of writing the book because we thought the references were getting too many. The fact of the matter is this isn't my opinion. This is what's in the literature. This is what the research is showing us. And one of the things we're doing is, so I established a foundation, Foundation for Total Recovery, and we host a yearly meeting. We've got our third one coming up now. That'll be October 8, 9, 10, that the public can attend. It's a virtual meeting. But we have some of the top researchers and clinicians in the country who are speaking at this program. We have speakers from NIH, we have speakers from Stanford, we have speakers from Cornell, we have speakers from Georgetown. But the reality of the matter is what we have is some of our best and brightest within medicine to talk about this stuff. The program is designed, focus a bit more on docs to try and educate them, but we want the public educated as well. They're, we want the public to attend this meeting, to learn from it, and they can tune in. So they can go to totalrecovery.org, foundationfortotalrecovery.org, and just scroll down, find out where the conferences. You can look at our list of speakers, and I hope you'll attend. It'll be this November 8, 9, 10. We're doing everything we can to educate the public, but also educate our colleagues so that we've got more people who are willing to listen, more people who are educated, and more people who can take better care of you. Yeah. Let's go back a little bit so that if people are listening and they're going, hang on a second, we were talking about the immune system. Now we're talking about psychiatry. The brain is the organ of behavior. And we know this from multiple studies. When people get damaged to certain parts of their brain, it will change their personality. It will change their thoughts. It will change their behavior. Inflammation causes damage. But can you walk us through why would an infection lead to a behavior change? in a way that somebody could explain to their doctor or their partner. Sure. First off, there's this whole thing called sickness behavior. Sickness behavior is what happens when any mammal gets sick, be it a dog or a cat or a human. And what happens is we behave in a way in order to conserve our energy, in order to allow ourselves to heal for our natural healing process. Remember, inflammation isn't bad. Inflammation is how we heal. We need inflammation to occur. And what happens when we get inflamed, the brain in particular? We get tired. We get this thing called generalized malaise where we don't feel good. And what we want to do is we want to sit down or lie down, stay in bed. And it's all about conserving energy so that energy can be shunted elsewhere to go fight off the infection. It's all about management and conservation of energy as long as it's an acute process, meaning it lasts only a few days or a week or two, but no longer. When the system breaks and the system keeps thinking it's sick and inflamed, now what happens is it keeps the inflammatory process going on, which is your immune system, both the innate and the acquired. And as long as that continues to rev up and fire, you're fatigued. You have trouble with focus and concentration. Your brain doesn't work. This is all the stuff that's going on. Now, what's going on more specifically in the brain itself is the areas of the body that turn over the fastest, that grow the fastest, are those most susceptible to damage from inflammation. In the brain, 
that area is the dendritic region of the hippocampus. The hippocampus is responsible for consolidation of long-term memory. What happens is it's constantly taking all of that information in and translating it into long-term processes within the brain. What we do see in people who have chronic inflamed brains, and we see this in people with PET scans and with functional MRIs that can allow for uh, volumetric studies of the brain, we see loss of volume of different neuronal centers. The hippocampus is one of them. So guess what? You have trouble with focus, concentration, and memory. But the other thing that happens is we refer to this thing called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. The hypothalamus is a nuclei within the brain. The pituitary is that little stalk sitting at the base of the brain. And so what happens is the hypothalamus controls the pituitary, which is the master endocrine gland. And one of the things that comes out of that, it controls the adrenals, which is making cortisol and making part of your energy. Too much cortisol isn't a good thing. Too little cortisol isn't a good thing. Now, the reality of the matter is that axis is a bit misnamed because it's not the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. It's the amygdala hippocampal hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis. It's just too much for people to say, Dr. Kaplan. <laughs> <laughs> it is a bit. Uh, we can get deep into the weeds here. It's the whole alphabet. <laughs> it is. But the fact of the matter is when brains get inflamed, brain centers get damaged. Very interesting study. A colleague of mine at Georgetown did. She was looking at the military wants to know how to make super soldiers. One of the things they looked at is they said, okay, what makes our special forces guys so much different than everybody else? And one of the answers is there's an area of the brain called the insula cortex. And the insula cortex is larger in those individuals than in the rest of us. It builds resilience, ability to adapt and respond. Guess what helps build up the insula cortex? Meditation. Meditation, and she was working specifically with this study, Elizabeth Stanley, was doing a Mr. Fit study looking specifically at using meditation to increase the insula cortex, which in fact she demonstrated was happening in the military. And then the next stage was to prove that it was improving resilience in the field. Their decision-making was better, their focus, their concentration, their ability to maneuver in battle situations, high-stress situations was better. Maybe meditation is a good way to help rebuild your brain. It's not maybe, it is a good way to help build your brain. Daily meditation. And I practice, I do 40 minutes of meditation every morning. It's part of my daily routine. Let me ask you, you said build up the insular cortex, but what does that mean? It had more blood flow, more metabolic activity. Did the volume increase? The volume increased. Wow, literally. The volume increased. Oh, you can measure differences in, in the environment. There's lots of studies on insular cortex changes along with meditation. Without question, meditation is a brilliant way to help build resilience within your system. We know some of the specific neuronal centers that get involved, but it also reduces inflammation in the central nervous system. The other thing that's a spectacular anti-inflammatory in the brain, exercise, aerobic and aerobic. I can hear, hold on, hold on. Now, everybody who's sick and tired, just <laughs> stop listening, threw their phone away. And they're thinking... Dr. Kaplan, I told you I'm fatigued. Why are you telling me to exercise? What would you say to that? The mantra around here is pacing, not pushing. We don't want people crashing. We want you doing as much as you can do, but I don't want you to crash because a crash indicates that you further inflamed your brain. No crashing. We want you doing as much as you can, and we're respectful of the fact that you're going to be limited as long as your brain's inflamed. But as time goes on, you'll be able to do more 
as we reduce the inflammation. Now, again, not just with exercise, but we've got to be doing other things. If there are bugs involved, we've got to kill bugs. If there are toxins involved, we have to remove the toxins. We had mentioned earlier before we got on the air about sleep. Let's talk about sleep. The first question is, why do we sleep? Sleep is critical for a number of reasons. One is it allows for reparative processes to go on in the body, but the brain doesn't have any lymphatic systems within it. It's connected to the lymphatic system, as our friends at UVA found out a few years ago. But there's no lymphatic system within the brain. What does that mean? The lymphatic system are the drainage ditches that run throughout our entire body. Cells work. They produce waste. That waste has to be removed. If you don't remove that waste from the cells, they get toxic because all that waste is building up. Same thing happens in the brain. How does the brain get rid of the toxins? The brain is the most metabolically active organ in the body. Other trivia point. How much does a chess master, how many calories does a chess master burn during a tournament for four hours sitting at that table playing chess? I don't know. I bet a lot. Tell us. The average individual will burn about 2,000 calories a day, 1,500 to 2,000. That four hours sitting there playing chess Four to 5,000 calories. Wow. Cool fact. No? That's amazing. <laughs> it is. And I found that out from a patient of mine whose son is a chess master. <laughs> Apparently, they've got to feed him all day long while they're playing chess. Wow. What happens is the brain actually gets heavier throughout the day because it's building up toxins, meaning that it's also swelling. And you talk about brain fatigue. I'm like brain dead by the end of the day. That's happening because your brain's tired. Your brain's literally fatigued because of all the toxins building up. And tell us, though, why did you bring up sleep? And is it because of the lymphatic system and how critical it is for brain recovery? Or, yeah, why is it? It's a whole chapter in your book. Absolutely. Sleep is fundamental in order to us to get better and to get healthy. And it's one of the first things that goes when our brains get inflamed. We're constantly having to work to help restore people's sleep in order to be able to help their brains recover and in order to be able to reduce and the immune system. If you're not sleeping properly, your immune system will not work properly. Sleep and the functioning of the immune system are intimately related. It's important that we address both things. Beautiful. And simple as that. I love it. You have a bunch of sections in your book about pans, pandas, and pots. And I want to pick your brain about those because I think I wish more doctors knew about them and we're specialized in them. Talk to us about these disorders. What are they and what are the symptoms and how do you fix them? Suedo back at the end of the 90s identified the fact that there were kids who were getting strep infections. And as a result of the strep infections, we're developing an autoimmune process to their brain. These kids were getting obsessive compulsive disorder. They were getting depressed. They were getting suicidal, very seriously ill. And she was the first to really recognize this and call it, she called it pediatric acute onset neuropsychiatric syndrome from strep. As a result of that, other research subsequently showed that, guess what? It wasn't just strep. There were other diseases that were doing this, Lyme disease, Epstein-Barr virus, flu, Mycoplasma pneumonia, there's a whole list of different bugs now that we know can potentially do this to kids. Now, the challenge with pandas, it's really interesting because pandas is what happens in kids. There is an adult version of it because the same thing is happening in adults just because the brain is more mature because the blood-brain barrier, that is the membranes that surround the brain, help keep out a lot of the peripheral immune system from the brain. 
So it protects. It also helps protect against other bacteria and stuff. It's not as well formed in kids. Kids get a different set of symptoms than adults. They tend to get more neuropsychiatric stuff, meaning that they will act out. ADHD. If your kids get ADHD, you need to find out if, in fact, they've missed a diagnosis of pans pandas. What we've subsequently found is we have to identify these viruses. I've got one kid who's gone back and forth mycoplasma pneumonia, relatively easy to treat, but every time she gets the infection, she's a nightmare. Treat the infection, she gets all better. Now, at one point, what we have to do with a number of these kids is take their tonsils out. And once we take their tonsils out, they get better. They don't like me when I tell them we have to take the tonsils out. <laughs> I've got one poor kid right now just had his tonsils out a week ago. Horrible sore throat. He's just been miserable. On the other hand, it's better young than it is old because I also have 30-year-olds who have had to tell them they get their tonsils out. And lo and behold, they get better. And interestingly, we don't necessarily grow strep out of those tonsils, but we'll grow a whole series of other infections out of them. And now the immune system doesn't have to be hyper alert and it quiets down. Yeah. You mentioned finding a doctor who will look at these things for you. What type of testing would show this type of immune activity? Specifically with pans pandas and even with my adults, we use a test called the Cunningham panel. Molecular is the lab that you can get that through. There's a lot of good research on it. I've done some of that research myself that I participated in, but it's in the literature. It's peer-reviewed literature. Peer review is a big deal. That means other of our colleagues who are experts in the field have looked at it and said, okay, this research holds up. Makes sense. And does it look at saliva or blood? What is it? It's a blood test, and it's testing for specific antibodies to very specific nuclei in the brain. That's the other challenge, is there's a lot of different nuclei, uh, a lot of different antibodies that can attack different pieces of the brain. So then one antibody doesn't attack the whole brain. If you don't look for the specific antibodies, you're not going to find them. The molecular test, which came out, the cutting end panel, which came out of the research that Sueda was doing, specifically looked for that set of antibodies. Again, it's not just kids. We find similar problems in adults. Same antibodies, different symptoms because more mature brain. Guys, if you're at home thinking, oh, I want someone to order that for me, most functional medicine doctors can order it for you, but you could also just Google Cunningham panel and usually, and on their website, I think they have a list of providers who offer this test. They have a list of providers who offer the test. And then sometimes you can get the, I don't know the molecular errors that did the test because you need somebody to interpret it, but some of these labs, there are services that'll come to your house and draw the blood and that'll help you do it. And then the whole thing with Lyme disease, who do you trust in terms of testing for Lyme disease? Because frankly, there's massive problems with testing for Lyme disease with LabCorp and Quest. That could be a whole show unto itself. But you've got to figure out if those tests are positive, then you unquestionably have the disease. But the reality of the matter is they miss better than half the cases of Lyme disease. The other thing to keep in mind, and we talk about chronic Lyme or post-treatment Lyme syndrome, part of that problem is you forgot to look at the other bugs. You can get Babesia. It's the most common. It's a parasite that occurs along with Lyme and causes fevers, chills, and night sweats. Babesia can be part of the problem. Bartonella which uh, we alluded to earlier in the show with the kid that I was seeing especially causes lots of neurologic problems and it causes these bright red or purplish stria folds in the skin. And I had one kid who had Bobesia or Bartonella who went to the children's hospital and they told him that they accused him of cutting behavior where he had been cutting himself and that's why those lines were there. There were a couple of problems with that. One is there were about a dozen straight lines 
in the middle of his back. Second is the skin wasn't cut. <laughs> no, that isn't what was happening. But this is this business of bending light because you're unwilling to see what in fact is in front of you. You're going to make it something else. You're going to deny that it's there. That's ridiculous. You can say, I don't know what it is, but you're not allowed to say it's not there when it is there. I'm so glad that you, as a physician and an educator, are taking this stand. I think it'll be a relief to a lot of people to hear you saying this. I'm wondering, though, so someone's thinking, I've gotten a bunch of tick bites in my life. I wonder if I have some tick-borne illnesses. How would they check? What do you recommend? There's a couple of labs that I think are useful and good for this. Vibrant Lab would be one. Hygienics would be another. There are a couple of other labs. I don't have a lot of experience with them, but I do trust these two labs and they give good results. Hygienics is based out of California and Vibrant is, I believe, based out of New Jersey. And what are they doing that's different than Lab or Quest, in your opinion? One of the things is Lyme is Lyme, Borrelia burgdorferi is one type of Lyme disease, but there are about eight subtypes of Lyme. Miyamoto, there's a bunch of others. If you're only testing for that one, you miss it. You miss the other seven that might be there. The other thing is the Western blot is old technology and highly inaccurate technology. Immunoblots are much more accurate and better testing. Doing that kind of testing gets you a much better result. About 95% of the immunoblots will pick up stuff. And again, but you have to be testing for multiple strains of the bug. If you're not testing for multiple strains of the bug, if you didn't test for the strain you got, too bad, they missed it. The other thing about Lyme disease is we treat for too short a period of time. And again, here's the challenge. The challenge is 80% of people who get Lyme disease, you're going to treat them with doxy. They're going to get better after a couple of weeks. I believe that you need to treat for longer than that. But they'll get better, and that'll be the end of it. 20% of people go on to chronic. And why is that? And then that gets back to what is the story with all of this subgroup of people who get sick right. and stay sick? And that gets us back to having to do a much more comprehensive workup. And again, we look at people who have grown up in abusive households where their immune systems are already weakened and challenged. We go looking for toxins in their system, mold toxins, heavy metals, pesticides that have potentially weakened their immune system and set them up for long-term problems. We go looking in the gut. Okay, we haven't talked about the gut, but the reality of the matter is if the gut's not healthy, the brain isn't healthy. And the brain's not healthy, the gut's not healthy. You have to do a proper workup of the gastrointestinal system and a proper history. And that is an involved functional medicine workup. I'll give you another example of a kid who was suicidal, tried to hang himself, multiple psychiatric workups. I got to see him. In part of my workup, I'm looking for things that will potentially cause inflammation in the central nervous system of the brain. And what we found out it was he had celiac disease. Celiac disease is an autoimmune disease to gluten. This is not an allergy to gluten. This is not something somebody made up. This is a disease that can kill you. And you can't have gluten in any way, shape, or form. And 5% of people with celiac disease will not have any gastrointestinal problems. They'll only have neurologic problems. And in his case, depression was what was the issue for him. We took him off all gluten. We healed his gut, which is a bit of an involved process because you can have cross-reactive foods. And inside of a year, off all antidepressants, no further depression. I followed him for about six, seven years now, and he's been doing spectacular. The gut is another whole area that needs to be investigated properly and properly addressed. I 
talk about that also in the book. There's a lot involved of what set you up. How did you get here? What's the risk? There's unquestionably genetic factors also in the play. We don't understand them well enough yet, but we're getting there. But genetic factors that have to be factored in, which is why we see this in families. We see mom, kids, all of a sudden everybody in the family is sick. And then we have to work out any bugs that you have. So we got to detoxify you. We got to work out any infections that you have long term. And then we have to look at the immune system and see what the health of the immune system is. There's a lot involved in properly taking care of individuals who are struggling with these long-term, very serious health problems. But they can recover. If you're willing to take the time and do the step-by-step approach, you absolutely can recover and get your health back. Part of what I want people to understand is the approach that you talked about in the beginning is that it takes two hours when you see someone for the first time. Guys, if you're struggling with these illnesses or these symptoms or your kids are, Go to your primary care in general because you should always go for your checkups every year. But expecting that doctor to do in five minutes what a doctor like Dr. Kaplan will do in hours and hours with you, it's not reasonable to expect this from your primary care. You have to find a specialist who is trained in this type of care and who has the time to do the medical detective work. Dr. Kaplan, I know you have an incredible practice. Can you tell us about your clinic, and then tell someone who maybe can't come see you how they'd find a doctor like you. The first place to start would be the book. All right. I wrote the book for the purpose of, listen, there's only a couple of us here, and we really want to get this out to as many people as possible. The book is one way to educate yourself and begin to have a conversation with your physician about what testing should be done and how to properly get yourself diagnosed and treated. The conference that we're having in November is another way to educate yourself and your physician. Tell them to come because this is about educating docs so that they can learn about what's going on. As far as our clinic is concerned, we're set up with three physical therapists. We have three physicians. We have a nurse practitioner. We have a psychotherapist. We have an acupuncture herbalist and a nutritionist. We have found that we really need to be able to be broad enough and have enough in-depth expertise on staff to be able to handle these very complex individuals. And then we've got a big supportive staff. We're also a very high-touch practice. That means that when you call the phone, when you call us, you actually get a person on the other end of the line and to respond to your questions. That's how the practice is set up. It is We are fee-for-service, so it's not for everybody. We do not take insurance. We can't do the work we do within our insurance model. Can you explain to people why that is? I think, first of all, tell us where you are and then walk people through why that is. Because I think sometimes people hear that and they think, oh, you guys just don't want to take insurance. Why would you literally not be able to do this type of care taking insurance? Again, we could do another whole show on this. But the reality of the matter is insurance is not a health model. Insurance is an illness model. The ideal physician's office, the ideal hospital, according to the insurance company, is empty. Pay your premium, go away. We don't want you to see. They have algorithms about one disease, one condition, one visit, period, and move on. And they won't see anything else. And we can't operate that way. We operate, I'm working with gastrointestinal problems with people at the same time working with their headaches, at the same time that I'm working with their chronic pain, their sleep disturbances. All of that has to be handled. And you can't handle that in five minutes. It takes a while to sort through that and make sure you've got them on proper supplements, the proper, you've done the proper testing. And with chronic people, it's always test, retest, meaning that you keep having to check in with them to make sure that you haven't missed something, that something new hasn't arrived, and that you're not missing things. It's a very high touch situation and insurance companies don't want to pay for any of that. 
Now, I'll give you an example if you have a minute for a story that has haunted me. is my father. My father, I see him in December, and he says he's fine. My father is 95. He was 94 at the time. Vigorous. But I see him in December, and I go for a walk with him, and I'm used to taking a mile, two-mile walk with Dad. Dad can't walk for 100 feet. Short of breath, heart's pounding away. I'm going, did you talk to the cardiologist recently? He said, oh, yeah, I saw him two weeks ago. I said, okay, I'm calling the cardiologist. I call the cardiologist, and the first thing he says to me is, he's 94 at that time. And I said, okay, we're going to restart this conversation. <laughs> and he said, well, all right, I'll put a halter monitor on, which is a continuous monitor to see how his heart is doing. Fine, because he's blanketing me. They put the monitor on him, and they find out that it's in third-degree heart block. Okay, that needs a pacemaker. I said, that's fine, except that's not going to solve this problem. I said, and why does he have, again, root cause, right? Why does he have suddenly have third-degree heart block? The answer is he's had some kind of a small heart attack that did damage to the conduction system of the heart. But we're not going to go there. They put a pacemaker in him, and he still can't walk, still getting short of breath. He, they put him on a stress test. He gets a minute, and he's done. I go. I'm flying down there, and they're going to do a cardiac cath on him. I'm in the airport, literally in the airport on my way down there, and I get a call that says, your father's anemic. And I said, how anemic? He says, his hemoglobin is 6.8. That's half a tank. You can run a car on half a tank. You cannot run a person on half a tank. We talked about transfusions. They gave me a couple of units. I got down there. The cardiologist meets me and says, we can't do the cath because hematology didn't clear. I said, are you curious to know where the blood loss is going, coming from? And he says, I don't know. Do you want him to see a gastroenterologist? I said, I'd love for him to see a gastroenterologist. What I found was happening was my father was getting progressively anemic, progressively losing blood. But the cardiologist is a pump guy, not a fluid guy. Even though that's the fluid going through his pump, he's ordering the test. He's watching my father become increasingly anemic, but that doesn't affect his pump. It's terrifying to me what's going on in medicine these days. And we've become so subspecialized, and, and this is because of insurance, because it doesn't pay for him to look at the blood work. It pays for him to do procedures on the heart, replace a valve, do coronary angiography. But he hasn't got paid to do medicine. He gets paid to do procedures. We've gone to hell in a handbasket, and we have the most, the worst illness-based medicine system in the world. It costs us a bloody fortune to take care of people because we do not treat for health. We treat only for illness. And the end result of which is it's costing us a bloody fortune. The health of our population is declining. The death rate in this country is increasing from chronic illness, heart disease, diabetes, the basics. And we're doing a horrible job because the insurance model has driven us to this because it will not pay for legitimate health care. It pays for illness care. Someone is listening to this and thinking, my gosh, this sounds like me or my loved one. We're like, you wind up at a specialist because something is wrong and they patch up their organ and then they send you away and something else goes wrong and another specialist patches up that organ. What would you say to people in that situation that they should do? You absolutely need somebody who is in charge of the show. You need a general practitioner or an internist who is legitimately watching out for your interest and coordinating all of the specialties as they need to be. All right, again, a patient I just saw He's got atrial fibrillation. He's got severe sleep apnea. He's not using a CPAP. And he also has some kidney disease. 
which he's not been taken care of. So my nurse is brought into the room and I said, okay, I want him to have appointments with this specialist, this person, and this person. Make those appointments for him right now, please. Because we're going to step in and we're going to make sure that he moves to the front of the line so that he's getting the care he needs. You need somebody who's actually going to take care of you. My job isn't to do everything. My job is to coordinate your care, do everything I can do, but otherwise make sure that we pull in the appropriate specialists in order to optimize your care and to coordinate that care. And make sure nothing falls through the cracks right. and that you're catching things like a medication interaction. Maybe one specialist gives them this medication and another one gives them another one. Neither of them know that they're taking three medications now that interact with each other. And absolutely, this guy, he's on two medications that aren't doing anything for him whatsoever. I said, make those go away. Stop those two. Potential complications and no help. There you go. Yeah. There you go. So many valuable things that people can get, not just the medical detective work, but when you've got a complicated or chronic illness, you really do need somebody who looks at the whole you, who's advocating for the whole person, who can then help every other appointment you have with every other professional go better and just add to your health. I know we could talk for hours and hours. I am so glad you've written this book. And I want to say, guys, I didn't have Dr. Kaplan go through every single intervention. But when you look in this book, what you'll see is that he'll talk about heavy metals. What type of tests could you do for heavy metals? What type of treatment could you do? What are the supplements you should consider? I really want you guys to go buy this book. I think it's excellent. Follow Dr. Kaplan because you'll see some of the events he's talking about that you can attend and learn more But Dr. Kaplan, the Root Cause Medicine podcast, we're all about practical, tactical. If there's one tip you could leave people with today to make their lives better, what would that tip be? Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't let anybody write you off. Take yourself seriously. Listen to yourself. Another quick story is I just had a patient in earlier today. She is depressed and miserable. She's living in Florida. She hates living in Florida. And we went through, why are you living in Florida? (laughs) (laughs) and she needs to leave. She's hated Florida since she got there. It's not the right place for her. Fine. Listen to yourself. Be respectful to yourself. Listen to yourself. Treat yourself with respect and make sure you're taking proper care of yourself. And find a doctor like you and the doctors at your practice who are going to listen to and believe in you and support you as well. Correct. Don't have people in your life who don't respect you and who don't listen to you. Let those people need to go away whoever they are. I feel uplifted after talking to you. I can only imagine your patients feel so great. (laughs) And I'm so thankful that you've written your books that you have. I'm grateful that you're running your incredible practice. We will have you back to teach us more about chronic illnesses and the immune system and dysautonomias in the future. Thank you so much for being here with us today. It's a privilege to be here. And thank you for doing this show because this is how people learn. And you getting out there and educating people is so important. Thank you for the work you're doing. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. We have one quick favor to ask you before you go. If you love today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a five-star review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? Our whole goal is education. So positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing and we appreciate it so much. We'll catch you next time on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast.